being contrarians. So, for instance, most recently, someone like Elon Musk is a good example, um, where, like, if he was actually to give a neutral comment, everyone would think, what the hell's going on? You know, he's actually now a caricature of having to say things that are completely outlandish. Um, and, you know, I have to say someone like Donald Trump, for instance, who... Again, yeah, he can't say a neutral thing. He has to come out with controversy because that's what his brand. Um, so, so I think that's the thing with leadership. It's like you, you end up sort of becoming what you're known for, and that's what you got to stick to. You know, otherwise, people be disappointed with you either way. Peter um, is another great example of in tech. You know, made his name as a contrarian, and now you know has uh, yeah, can't have a normal point of view. Has to be has to be outspoken. So. And, you know, often very smart people, right? So it's it's interesting that like they kind of build that brand on, on kind of being contrarian and having a view. We're going to talk about that straight away. Um, like what is the, the position of the personal brand of a leader of a business? How important is it? And, and do you cultivate it? And do you accidentally find yourself having to adopt a persona because of your previous journey and i'm not a leader because i don't leave a business but i do feel a little bit of this in the sense obviously a lot of people might now have an opinion as to who or what i am and there's certain times when i think oh i need to actually play up to this because this delivers a punchline <laughs> you know I mean? it's like a, may not be exactly what i mean but um but anyway we'll talk about this this is gonna be an interesting one um anyway folks we're live everybody um welcome to the return of one of the favorite things for me to do every week i wish i was doing this every week actually because it's it's definitely one of the the favorite things i've got to do i don't even feel like it is work um and that is founders focus this is the series where we get up close and personal with the leaders of technology businesses changing the work we do today. Um, and this idea started off as a bit of a joke, to be honest, um, where it was like, you know, what kind of idiot thinks that, oh, I've got a problem with recruitment. Um, and the, the, the best solution to that is to set up a recruitment technology business to solve it like, industry-wide. Strikes me as an irrational position to take. Like most of us would just say, oh yeah, that was bad. Then just get on with your day. But no, there's certain people who have actually gone ahead and tried to do something about it. And this is why these conversations are so interesting. Uh, and today I'm going to be speaking with one of the most interesting and dynamic and charismatic people in our business. It's Mark Chaffee, CEO of Hacker Job. So Mark, welcome to the show, man. Great to see you. Great chatting with you as always. Um, and, and yeah, I wonder whether, you know, we'll kick off with what we're talking about, the, the personal brand of leadership. Is this in your consciousness? Um, and, and if so, if, if not, oh, that's fine. But if so, what does that mean as a decision maker? And, you know, what do you got to, how do you got to play this one? Yeah. Well, hey. Thank you for having me on. First and foremost, you are the legend of our industry. Always, always fun to sit down. So, so thank you. Um, personal brand is actually something that I've spent more time thinking about and I'm very conflicted on. Um, there's an element of me that thinks that personal brand should wait, you know, actually like go and build something massive, go and have like that really successful outcome, um, and spend less time focused on personal brand and more time on like company building and, and building a really meaningful business. Um, and, you know, I don't want to pick on anyone, but there are certain, you know, TikTok influences, Instagram influences, even LinkedIn, right? It's really become a, a, a hub of personal brands. And, you know, this idea that you are in your 20s and you're going to go and tell people how to live their lives, it's almost become a meme a little bit, right? The CEO wakes up at 5am, meditates, et cetera, et cetera. So on one hand, I'm kind of conflicted and feel like, you know, at the stage I'm at in my career, it's about proving, 
you know, that I can build something really meaningful with an amazing team, etc. But then on the other hand, like personal brand can be really valuable for the business. So absolutely, by me having a presence in our industry, me speaking at events, doing sessions like this, you know, today, there'll be new people in our industry that get to learn about Hacker Job for the first time, our story, what we're trying to do, etc. And that can be very valuable. And I have decided that LinkedIn is a platform I would invest in. So, you know, I am active on LinkedIn. I want to share as many updates about what we're working on as possible, the good and the bad. Um, so, you know, I am investing time into getting my name out there and my brand out there because I believe that on LinkedIn, it will have a direct benefit to the business. Um, but I haven't gone full YouTuber vlog personal brand yet. So, uh, yeah. yeah, it's an interesting one. Definitely conflicted on it. It is a conflict, and and I know a little bit about this because I mean, folks who've been who know me sort of before the brain food era um, know that I actually launched a recruiting technology business that was a competitor of Hacker Jobs actually back in the day, um, and and I actually made the decision not to do personal brand, uh, and I like stopped posting, pulled myself back away from it, and I had exactly the same psychology, pushed the company brand forward, and have that deliver this deliver the value. I ain't got nothing to do with it, and I didn't do any podcasts, speaks talks nothing i look back at that now i see it as a mistake um yeah definitely i think it's one of the roles that you have to play as the ceo of the business to front it up you have to be the front man uh for the company um and like it or not people are going to want to buy off you whether the product is good or bad um and even if the product is good they may not still buy off you unless they know who the person is um that's behind it so I, I i discovered this too late um and i think a lot of entrepreneurs also discovered this too late had a conversation just before this call actually with another friend of mine who's just launched her business um and new product and all the rest of it and she actually did say yeah hung i don't have much of an audience um and uh you know asking me for now advice on how to do that because obviously since brain food that audience has been built and I was just thinking, yeah, this it, like it's the consciousness of the value of the, the CEO as a marketing asset, let's say, um, mm -hmm. is something that we shouldn't underestimate because that's a question VCs are going to be uh, interested in. That's a question that buyers are going to be interested in, particularly uh, sort of bigger enterprise or, or organizations that have more at stake. If they're going to sign a contract with Hacker Job, like, okay, what's the track record? Who's the person behind it? Who's the team? That's relevant um that you can't not talk about that so so i get what you're saying man it's it's a difficult balance because it's not naturally you know uh, th that way it does feel a little bit narcissistic um i think the people in british culture as well it's not the same thing to, to be done perhaps uh but yeah you got to embrace it folks <laughs> i love the uh, i love the line of ceo as a marketing asset i think that actually like helps harness like what is the goal of building a personal brand i think one of the reasons why i'm conflicted on it is i think as a co-founder of business as a ceo you can get very distracted you know there are a lot of different opportunities out there for you you could spend all day every day doing pr or doing different bits and pieces but actually if you look at it as a strategy of personal brand as a ceo as a marketing asset that like okay cool now where should i spend my time to really optimize like the impact i can have as a marketing asset because you're so spot on, right? Inside the business, you know, obviously when we win a big customer, they'll have access to me, right? And we'll be able to be a part of their QBRs, their reviews, whatever. It's a key part of kind of buying into a startup, right? Is that you've got that access. So I think, yeah, getting the, the personal brand out there, the CEO's marketing asset out there uh, and choosing where you do that. And especially in a community like ours, 
you know, the internal recruitment world is still a relatively small world. You know, it's grown, you know, a tremendous amount since we set up this business, but it's still a relatively small world with, you know, pockets of communities. And you want to be a big part of those communities and you want to be genuinely contributing to those communities, right? And I think that's the key thing behind any personal brand. It needs to be authentic. It needs to be who you are. And um, you don't want to turn into too much your character, caricature, like we were saying at the start. Yeah, that's right. And yeah, it's 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 you know even we were talking about Elon Musk and and, he, and Donald Trump is almost like the negative examples of. Um, but in in the same way, they 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 their their the size of their brand hasn't damaged their business operations in any way, right? Um, it I mean they've damaged their business operations in a different way, uh, <laughs> you know, through operational mismanagement, let's say but not through their having a strong personal brand. So you think, okay, that there, there is a way in which you could do that in parallel. Um, and I think for a startup, you've got to have your own sort of, you, you can't be picking and choosing what you like to do as a CEO. You've actually got to embrace it all um, and, 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 and dive into it, uh, which segues nicely into the next thing we want to talk about, Mark, which is of all of the things that you do as a CEO, have you sort of identified the things where you think, yes, I can, I could spend all my time doing this because I enjoy it and I'm good at it. And what are those things? And what are the things where you think, you know, what I always leave that at the bottom of the to-do list, when it, even when it's like a, a red klaxon telling me I need to do it now. Um, what, 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 is, what are one of those examples? What are those things? Yeah, great question. So I think the thing that I enjoy the most about my role is like the people side so leading you know when our team of 150 people leading 150 people being really conscious of like the culture that we're creating and culture evolves so much right we more than doubled headcount last year so half of the people inside our business have worked for us for less than 12 months right so naturally the culture of the organization today is going to be very different to what it was 12 months ago and that's completely fine but being very conscious in how the culture is evolving and culture isn't top down at all you know it comes from you know everybody in the business and the decisions they take each day so i love that side and you know i spent a lot of time hiring and, and kind of building out our team and, and understanding where our gaps are and then there's nothing more satisfying than finding somebody super talented in the market to then get them in and, and fill one of those gaps and often they're replacing me in some functional area that i might have been doing for a period of time we're just going through this transition in sales at the moment and it's awesome to see a new sales leader come in who's so much better than me and it's like yeah that's like a, a really really satisfying feeling um so i love that side i think um you know naturally as a as a ceo of a technology startup fundraising is a big part of your job and uh, the fundraising landscape has changed a lot over the last 12 months um you know with all of the different things that are happening so i think that that's a, a necessary part and I'm, I'm not sure or maybe there are ceos out there that love the fundraising part of the job i'm, I'm not necessarily that person i'm mar far more interested in, in kind of building the business than than that piece um and i think the final thing i love about the role is like the context switching so the fact that you know today i go from you know speaking to a couple of investors this morning doing this session i've then got a session with our pulse team which is looking at okrs session with our revenue team, our marketplace team, a few more investor catch-ups. Like, you know, the breadth of content that I get to be a part of is, is super fun. So they're all the things I love. 
the things that normally at the bottom of my to-do list, um, I could put up my to-do list now and see what's on it. And I'm sure there's been a fair few things that have sat there for a while. Oh, I, was about to, I was about to say, why don't, you, why don't you screen share that, Mark? But it was probably confidential, so don't screen share it. Uh, just, just tell us what you can. Yeah, so anything, so I have this, like, I'm terrible at life admin in my personal life, and I'm terrible at, like, business admin. So there's one on the to-do list to add one of our financial controllers to some investor reporting. That's been on the to-do list for probably two months at this point. <laughs> and it's, like, close to the top to know that I need to do it, but it's not at the top that I've done it. And it's that sort of admin I hate. Um, and the other thing that I'm not particularly good at is, like, documentation of process. So new sales leader comes in and I can see I've got four tasks for him uh, that have probably been sat there since he joined eight weeks ago. And, you know, it's about documenting some of the processes that, that we built that just aren't, aren't documented anywhere. And they've sat on the list for a while. So, yeah, admin and process, probably not my strong suit. Mate, isn't ChatGP3 your best mate if this is the case? Because you've just yeah. listed a few things there. I don't, obviously, you're aware of it as a technology. I'm sure everyone, if you're watching this, you probably uh, know about Chat GPT, GPT um, and the impact it's having. It's really just been an incredible uh, uh, product in terms of its usage, its impact, and it's just, you know, it's kind of mind-blowing. But the, the things it looks like it's able to do are exactly this, scheduling stuff, um, you know, documentation, copy production, et cetera, et cetera. Now, have you thought about using this to, to do, do your, improve your personal productivity, Mark? And are you thinking about it in terms of putting it in somehow into your roadmap with HackerJob? It is probably the biggest debate I'm having at the moment with our VP of product and VP of engineering around like how much value can we get from this? My conflict on this is like, I think quite a lot of people have rushed to implement stuff, which bluntly is gimmicky for marketing, which, which serves its purpose, don't get me wrong, but I'm not convinced it's necessarily uh, solved someone's problem yet. Um, uh, do I think we will implement some form of um, generative AI that it's being dubbed as? Yes, I think it's very likely that we will. I think my philosophy on technology within talent acquisition has always been that Technology is going to automate more and more of the laborious manual tasks that, that internal recruiters do and give internal recruiters more time to do the things that they are superhuman at, which is candidate experience, candidate management, that whole piece. But, but bluntly, you need that human to human uh, interaction and relationship to do. And I think this is the next evolution of that. So, you know, is it going to be a solution where it's going to send out 200 completely personalized LinkedIn emails for you, right? And it's going to, you know, you're not going to need to do that anymore. And just as an internal recruiter, you just wake up to the five that have replied and have booked in for you now, and you can just focus on that part of the process. I think there's some really interesting stuff that you can do there. And ultimately, I don't believe it's going to replace uh, humans in a recruitment process or replace software engineers or, or any of that. But I think it will give each individual far more leverage to do a lot more. So maybe you need smaller teams than what you needed before. That was an amazing... Uh, podcast I was listening to over the weekend that was saying like maybe you could rebuild Stripe with like 10 engineers mm. you know and it's like that idea is kind of crazy so we've definitely thought a lot about it in terms of our product roadmap and where we might see it and there might be a few announcements coming out soon on, on a couple of different areas we're going to be leveraging it in terms of like personal productivity bluntly no <laughs> um, I keep playing around with it but I haven't quite figured out like how it's going to be my job it's, you know how is it going to be that mm. AI assistant that we've always wanted because, yeah, I still do all of my own scheduling, all my own emails, and I'm getting to the point where, like, that admin kills me slightly. So if there is a way, 
you know, I'm very game to, to use it. For the, that. There's, is, it, it. There's a way, but it still requires a little bit more technical depth than maybe people like you and you and me have. I mean, I think you've got more technical depth than I, I have, but we're, we're probably both in a similar bucket of people are familiar and not frightened by technology, but we're not going to exactly, you know, get into the code and start building stuff. Um, but I saw a guy, I think it's called Andrew Ng or something, is, is some software developer, but he managed to basically get chat GP3 embedded into his a Apple calendar or something, and he hooked it up to Siri, and he ended up talking to it, um, and it did actually schedule things for him. Um, and, and actually got a voice back as well. So he was actually talking to a voice bot um, to book his stuff and making recommendations. So it, one of the examples he, he shot a video on was um, he asked the bot to say, okay, I think I need to take a walk. Can you find me the optimal time to take a 30 minute walk uh, sometime in the next five days? Um, and the bot said, yes, you've got three options here. Would you like to take a walk by a moment? I said, yes, please book that in. Boom, it was in. I thought, yeah, all right. So it's still a bit clunky, but it's kind of there, right? It's sort of getting there. Um, so it is a very exciting technology. And I'm excited for the technologists because this is seems to me like it's a new toy to play with. I totally agree. People be rushing in and, and throwing stuff at it. I, I don't think that's a bad thing because you're going to see good experimentations. Uh, and, and shipping quickly is another thing that's good. This is going to force right it's going to just accelerate the shipping cycle um so i think we're going to just get loads of innovation coming in loads of crazy stuff that's obviously not going to work in <laughs> the stuff we'll laugh at in hindsight in six months let's say but it's going to be fun while it's there it's like the pre-cambrian explosion of technology innovation so let's see how we go uh with all of that um exciting stuff mark you did say something sort of about sort of the um investment landscape um which was an interesting thing because a lot of people have been thinking about this um simply because we, we've seen retrenchment in um you know the vc world we've seen a lot of uh, tech layoffs etc we've seen a lot of people saying you know what maybe the boom times are over um can you give us a sober assessment if that's within your remit to do as to how you've seen the investment landscape in tech and recruitment tech uh over the last 12 months or so yeah, and I think there has been a fundamental shift. So if you look at what investors cared about back in the 2020, you know, through 2021, it was basically top line growth, but at kind of all costs. You had these massive hedge funds that were dubbed crossover funds like Tiger Global coming in. And I think <clears> in 2021, I think Tiger Global wrote an investment every 1.5 days or something obscene, right? Like it was ludicrous. And these were big, big investments, 20, 30, 40 million dollar investments. Um, and it was a product of, you know, a lot of the quantitative easing, printing of money, you know, very low interest rates, et cetera, et cetera. And basically just a lot of capital didn't know what to do. Crypto, another great example of, of kind of where it all ended up. And obviously with inflation, rising interest rates, suddenly the world looked very, very different, very quickly. And the thing that always makes me smile about investors is they were always right because they have the power to give out money and they've suddenly gone from, you, you used to have to grow at 3x, you know, revenue year on year, and that's kind of gold standard. Now we're like, now we'll take 2x, but you need to be profitable whilst you do it, right? <laughs> it's just like, accept that overnight. Like, that's a very different equation. So, you know, what's changed is, you know, investors are now looking for efficient growth. So before they would be very willing to fund a, you know, a company that's burning a lot of money, but growing very, very quickly. Now they're saying, actually, you know, we'll take slightly lower growth for you to grow in a far more disciplined way um, and a, you know, a more um, 
yeah, like looking at the unit economics of the business and understanding that actually the underlying go to market motion is a profitable motion. You may be loss making, but you know, there is a route to profitability over time. And what's coincided with that, especially in growth stages. So, you know, um, like series B and beyond is, you know, when you're raising, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 million dollars plus is a lot of these funds sizes have got really big. So investors have raised $1.52 billion funds, whereas previously they might have only raised $500 million funds. And that combined with this idea of multiple compression, so how much an investor is willing to pay for an investment. You know, in the boom times of 21, there were deals getting done. I know CEOs that raised at like 50 times revenue. So you could have 10 million in revenue and be valued at 500 million. Um, a fair play to the founders that pulled that off in that period, you know, it's now kind of normalized back to, I don't know what it is, 10 times, you know, revenue, let's say, or, or maybe even lower than that. And so with these massive funds and multiple compression, why you're not seeing many growth stage investments is these investors want to be able to invest $40 million, but they no longer can do it at a valuation that makes sense. And then founders are saying, we don't want to take dilution. So you know, there's much smarter people than me out there that have predicted, you know, through the second half of this year, you're going to see a lot more businesses come to market uh, and try and fundraise. And you're probably going to see a lot of down rounds where people raise at lower valuations than they have done previously. And bluntly, probably a lot of businesses uh, will fail and, and go under. Um, so I think it's going to be, you know, uh, it, it, we are operating in different times. I did at all hands. Uh, a couple of weeks ago that bluntly said to the business, like, we are going to get measured on different metrics. You know, we are operating in different times and we've got to be really, really wary of that um, as a business that, you know, is venture backed and wants to continue being venture backed. Yeah, very, very interesting. Thank you for that. Um, that observation, those observations, Mark. Um, I, I think most people will concur on this and I know people uh, who uh, you know follow Brain Food and, and what have you, that they're very interested to know um, from founder side and also for uh, as a conduit into the investment side, because a lot of them work for VC backed businesses also, um, and and they're seeing things sort of inside out uh, as well. So very interesting times for us uh, also, um, and, and yeah, it's going to be a tighter, tougher market for all of us going forward. Um, but one of the skills of being an entrepreneur is the ability to, you know, not be overly wedded to you know external environment per se it's almost like i don't know i don't know whether you have this mark but um you know a lot of the the, the ceos that i find that i have conversations with seem, seem to have like an almost an instantaneous adaptive switch um, it's like that there's not a lot of moping time it's like okay great this has happened right now what do we do it is straight into this 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 mode now do you have this mark and if so um you know where do you think you developed it and if not uh, can you develop it? Is it an innate thing to have? Or, you know, is this something that just distinguishes a certain character? Yeah, it's such an interesting question. So I think the best CEOs that I know, best founders that I know are very action orientated, right? And I think that that probably leads you to then when you see something's changed, there's no point moaning about the fact we're operating in a different environment. The reality is it's changed and we just need to roll up our sleeves and crack on with it. And I think like potentially the most important trait to being an entrepreneur is like resilience. It's like that grit to just keep going through the good times and the bad. Um, and I think that's one of the things that probably distinguishes, yeah, people that, you know, are willing to go through, you know, times maybe we are going to go through a tougher time in the next six, 12 months, et cetera. So I think that 
you know, I think we as a company do, do demonstrate a lot of resilience. I think we always have done, you know, ever since we founded the business. So, and I think that, yeah, I, I believe that that is a critical part for, for our traction and growth, et cetera. Um, do I think it can be learned? Yes, I do think like entrepreneurship is a skill and I think that over time you can get better at it. But I absolutely don't buy this notion that everybody should be an entrepreneur. Like it's become very cool and sexy and um, you know, uh, the side hustles, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a lot of like societal pressure that everybody should have a side hustle and everybody should be pushing out there. I do not buy that at all. Like, I don't think that being an entrepreneur is for everyone. I don't think that everyone should do it. Um, but if everyone did do it, <laughs> it wouldn't work. So you need some people that are willing to do, you know, full-time gigs. So yeah, I think that there's a lot of the skills that can be developed, but naturally like in any profession, there are going to be some innate personality types that are more suited to that profession than others. Two really interesting points. I want to talk about them both because I think they're, they're, they're worth it sitting down a little bit. Firstly, on the resilience side, for some reason, I, I got thinking about scar tissue. Um, and, you know, like, let's say you had a blow, a scar tissue. The scar tissue actually is tougher than what it was before because it's like layers of this skin that's on top. And over time, it actually becomes more resilient so i just wonder whether as an organization do you think that actually happens is there such a thing as organizational scar tissue whereby all right you've had a couple of buffeted moments but if you're still around and you, you come back actually that those earlier crises then stand you in greater stead um, or or is there like like fundamental damage in some way that makes you weaker going forward i mean what's your what's your perception of that like is that analogy uh, a reasonable one uh, and if so uh, can you describe certain situations that um you know map to uh, a hacker jobs's experience yeah so uh, two two interesting thoughts that come to mind there's this mental model that i've used a little bit internally um who a famous investor chamath on the all in podcast said which was like um the half-life of a business can could be like distinguishing its longevity so what did he mean by this he was like if you go from like something to massive in two years maybe that's the half-life of your business because you haven't developed this scar tissue because you haven't gone through the hard times and actually these businesses that compounded over years 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 i think he used amazon as the example that maybe took you know eight ten twelve years to get to scale maybe that's their half-life right and they end up being um you know much more longevity in those businesses that take a little bit longer to get there maybe figma's uh, a good example of a, a more recent success story at that scale so i absolutely believe that the organization develops scar tissue you know there's probably so 10, 12 people at HackerJob now that have worked with us for probably over five years. Um, so in that time, I've seen a ton of evolution, right? Um, and at the start of this year, you know, we took a tricky decision to, to do a bit of a reorg and, and change the structure of the organization. And those people that have been through that once or twice, you know, really understand that like that is kind of an evolution of a business and that's what we're going to go through. So like, I absolutely believe that, you know, our organization has developed scar tissue. I believe that, the people that have been through the journey, you know, a long time, I think are a little bit more like water off the duck's back. You know, it's a little bit like, yeah, cool. We're rolling up our sleeves and we're going to roll through with the punches um, and go through that. And I think it does make, uh, you know, the organization more resilient. So, you know, I talked a little bit about culture evolving as, we, as we've doubled in size over the last year. You know, and one thing we're really looking at is our values. And I'm really interested about, you know, this idea of resilience and grit inside the organization, because I think it is something that defines who we are. 
Yeah, very, very interesting. And, and I, I totally get this image of those like old heads, if those folks don't like me sort of saying this. But the fact of being through the mill a little bit, you know, maybe they've been in that garage stage and they've, they've seen ups and downs, they've seen, oh my goodness, we've got two weeks to survive. That type of email's gone out before, you know, the, 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 these types of people have gone through this. They there's there's a value in that experience. Again, I'm reminded of things like sports. You know, when you know when you're playing if you're playing a competitive football match or whatever it is, you can't just if you have a couple of old heads in there, they may not no longer have the legs, so to speak. They may not be absolute athletic peak, but the fact that they've seen it before and therefore they're they're not going to have the emotional volatility. Let's say um the, the more predictable performance and behavior because they've seen it before that in itself gives ballast to the team um and it means that you know you're going to be steadier as you go going forward so so yeah i guess i'm trying to evangelize about all people um it's like as i'm getting older you know i'm, I'm getting older i'm like even more like pro old um so uh so anyway really good point Let's go into the entrepreneurial side because I think it's very important you say as well. There is this sense that if you're not entrepreneurial, you're a failure. I think that's 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 coming through quite strongly, right? There's this evangelism coming through. The TikTok era, the influencer era doesn't help um, when you've got loads of people stepping in and, and, and uh, you know, demonstrating you know, a very curated lifestyle as to what how wonderful it is. I know you know, and you know my side as well, it ain't roses and rings, right? I mean, there's lots of good things about working for yourself, solopreneur, entrepreneur, whatever it might be, but it's not beyond and all. Um, can you tell us what are the reasons that made you confident to say not everyone should do it? To counter exactly what you said, right? Like, I remember in the first lockdown when I downloaded TikTok for the first time, and thought I was on it for like five minutes and two hours later, I'm still scrolling through these videos. And I'm like, this stuff is poison for the brain. So I deleted it and I haven't had it since, but that, that real feature is now in all of the apps, right? And you look at Instagram, you look at TikTok, even YouTube shorts, these, these like 10, 20, 30 second videos portray this image of entrepreneurship that it's like, and especially with what happened over the last few years of to the moon and, you know, these like crypto billionaires, you know, like it just felt like everybody around you is getting rich, doing these side hustles, day trading on Robin Hood, whatever it might have been. And you're not. And it's obviously nonsense, right? It, that is not true. That is not how companies are built. Once in a blue moon, you might see these incredible, incredible stories deal at the moment in our space, right? They shared some stats recently that it's like incredible, fair play to the team that have pulled that off. But the vast majority of, of, of kind of company stories are ones that are a lot of blood, sweat and tears that do take time. That is a lot of sacrifice. Um, and bluntly, like it's not necessarily the most enjoyable lifestyle. I was listening to a, a podcast of Chris Williamson um, last night, who I really rate actually. He's got a, a podcast called Modern Wisdom. And he was saying like in a lot of the successful people that he's interviewed, it's often like their deep insecurity that is driving them. And like potentially they are deeply flawed humans. And the only way that they can kind of tackle that insecurity is by chasing success, which in turn doesn't solve the insecurity and they chase more success. And so, you know, it is not all roses. And I think so much of the media out there try and portrays it as roses. I think it is super cool that people want to work eight, nine hours a day and then go and have a ton of leisure time in the evening, whether that be playing Netflix, play sports, whatever, like, you know, do whatever they want to do. So, yeah, I just don't think everybody should be an entrepreneur. I don't think that's the right um, message to send. I think we're all pretty different people. 
Um, and yeah, I think we should should push the message that it's not for everyone. Yeah, really, really interesting. And and wasn't it? I, I mean, I read somewhere whether it was apocryphal or not, but wasn't it the case that you know that there's a, a alarming number of CEOs or something are actually certified psychopaths or something? um uh, where you know in order to to get to that position and maintain sort of your career path as this person actually you require a certain psych psychological makeup which makes marks you out as kind of unusual um and again we're talking about personal branding right at the beginning of the show mark and in fact some of the bad examples we talk about personal branding are an example of these narcissistic and you know damaged individuals I, I don't think you can observe someone like donald trump or elon musk or whatnot not see the damage right the stuff going on there that isn't that isn't great um and that's externalized and you know sometimes externalized positive ways sometimes negative way but you can see that that's actually been the thing so you know that, that's something i think is worth considering um you know what's the personality makeup what's the driver i also would like to observe that it is the sort of the entrepreneurial path is also a high risk move that is not right uh, it's not a good gamble based on the, the circumstances of your life in many respects um and we'll talk about this in your case mark because you you kind of unusual in the sense you started off as on, i don't think you ever done anything else other than being an entrepreneur but let's say you're married with kids in in you you may be the main provider you got mortgage to pay uh kids going to school etc etc you got limited time um all of those things i think can really constrain whether going out and like setting a business from scratch is a good idea or not um because it means that your runway is super short compared to someone who doesn't have those externalities right um i remember like one of the things when i first started off my entrepreneurial journey I basically had like zero outgoings, you know, it was like, okay, I got rent to pay, but you know what? Don't do drugs. Can't drink much. Uh, you know, it's like, you know, what, what am I spending? I live boring life. You know, what, what am I spending this on? Right. So I wasn't spending a lot of money and I could crunch down and I could just, you know, basically uh, uh, live a, a more Spartan lifestyle for a period. But that's actually not an option for a lot of people with dependents, you know? What are you gonna do? Stop feeding your kids? You can't do that. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? So I think people need to factor it in. I agree, people should give it a go. And thankfully, it is like easier than ever to actually launch a successful business now. So I think the barriers of entry have gone down. But that's not to say you shouldn't be aware of your your personal circumstances, because that deeply informs what you can do and what you should do. Um, because there's no question like your personal runway is a big part of your decision making when you launch something, right? Uh, I don't know. I don't, maybe you can talk us through that a little bit, Mark. But I remember the first time I launched a business, like what now more than ten years or so ago. I knew I had twelve months, right? I, I knew I had twelve months, no income. I could do it. Um, uh, as it turned out, I took eighteen months and <laughs> nearly went bust as well. But I, I had that time, right? But if I had three months, I don't think I would have done anything. So, tell me about sort of when you first launched the business. Did you have a concept of the runway you had, or was it? Were you too young even to even think about that? Yeah, it's such a such an interesting question. So I co-founded Hacker Job uh, with Razvan. He his initial idea, his initial insight. So he had worked in a couple. He had founded a couple of different startups, worked in a couple of different startups, and saw an opportunity to improve the tech recruitment process with a more meritocratic approach. Um, and so he approached me, we knew each other from university, we were both studying at the time. And uh, yeah, he approached me and said, you know, I was looking for a co-founder, do you want to go on this journey together? And actually, 
quite quickly, um, we raised our pre-seed round from an angel investor that Razvan knew um, who had invested in one of his previous startups. So that gave us a little bit of time, combined with the fact we were studying, you know, I was in my final year of university. Um, and, uh, you know, I absolutely agree with you that at that point, you know, I was, what, 20 years old, I had nothing to lose. You know, like if this doesn't work at the end of the day, you know, to me, it didn't feel like a risky decision whatsoever. I had a good degree from a good uni, and I could always go and get a job at any point, right? Like, so, you know, I think at that phase of my life, I was like maximum risk. And even the phase of my life now, I'm like, yeah, I want to take maximum risk. And I think that risk factor definitely changes over time. Um, but yeah, we raised this small amount of money, and it was a small amount of money from an angel investor that Razvan knew. Um, and then uh, that was probably end of 2014, and then summer of 2015, we got into Techstars. Um, which again gives a little bit more investment and then off the back of that we were able to raise our seed round of funding and, and kind of go from there so for us it all happened pretty quickly um and and then you know that was kind of the journey and obviously there was moments where where you know that runway is much smaller and certainly you know over the last few years there's been moments where that runway has been much much shorter and you have to be very mindful of that um but that was kind of the journey so you know, I think that I was super fortunate that one, you know, Razvan asked me to be his co-founder and go through this journey with him. Um, and two, being really young and just being able to take maximum risk. Like you say, I think one thing that is certainly better or easier today is there are so many tools and technologies out there now that, you know, it is much easier to start. And my, you know, whenever I'm speaking to people that are interested in setting up a business and they have a job, I'm like, keep your job and do this as a spare thing. You know, even if you can only commit 10 or 20 hours a week, do it in your spare time initially, because with the likes of Figma, you don't need to be an engineer anymore to get prototypes out there. You know, we've already touched on what OpenAI are building, you know, you know potentially you won't even need to know software engineering. I'm not sure that's the case, but you know, be a prompt engineer or whatever. You know, there's so many different ways now to kind of validate an idea, test an idea. And and still to this day, Hung, and I'm sure you read this book way back when, the lean startup methodology is still true to this day, right? You want to test and iterate as much as you can in those early parts. So, yeah, I think I was definitely fortunate at the stage of my life where we where we co-founded this business and, and went on the journey. Um, and, yeah, definitely wanted to take yeah, maximum risk at that point. You know what the you talk about the lean startup, um, but I, I do think like almost every th person thinking about business needs to learn the fundamental lesson of what that is. Um, and I think most people in tech have, have read it, um, but I, th I think a lot of people outside of tech haven't because they think it's all about product iteration, which it is. But in fact, what it is is about feedback loops. Uh, <laughs> you know, it is about saying, you know what, get your stuff out there in the hands of the potential customer and then learn from that um stop analyzing stop designing you know stop thinking about all that stuff that you're doing it, sort of without anybody seeing it um and, and stop talking to people that aren't buying your stuff um you know you, there's all kinds of mentors out there there's all kinds of people out there that give you advice and and I, people come to me for it and i'm actually really loath to actually participate not because i don't want to I don't think I've got any like a value to add or anything like this, but I know I'm not the buyer of this tool. So I know this, the, the, the fact that they've asked me, that already is kind of a mistake. Um, if they're going to ask anybody, ask a person that is a potential buyer. It's usually someone you shouldn't know, right? It's like, if I'm your mate, I'm already compromised. 
You know, <laughs> it's like I, I'm almost trying to overcorrect my friendliness, to, my friendly relationship to you, and you know, try and be overly harsh, and uh, you turn come out like a like a dick. So it's it's not the way to do it. Um, but anyway, you're right. Lean startup, man. Get it out. Whatever it is, could be a service, could be a, a content, could be a, a product, could be whatever it is. Just get it out there, expose it, make people make sure people get using it, and then learn from that. I don't know where you saw actually. Have you, do you know a tool called Levels FYI? I'm sure you do. Um, yeah. They um, so so like I, I didn't even realize, but they pu published a post the other day. Say so, yeah, uh, uh, here's how you scale a product up to uh, a, a million plus users on back of Google Sheets. <laughs> the entire thing, the entire thing's back end of Google Sheets, and you think that's insane. You know that's absolutely ridiculous that this thing that people have used and by the way levels fyi is simply a kind of a compensation and leveling tool for tech companies so everyone shares what they're at anonymously and be able to know so what level they're at backed by i think two people built by two people on google sheets um so you know that's that's crazy talk um so, so yeah it's doable you don't need to go crazy on tech or invest hundreds of thousands you know software development and stuff like this no uh, you can get something out really early. Um, okay, cool. Let's move on to uh, talk a little bit about sort of where Hacker Jobs is right now. Uh, you mentioned 150 people. What are the plans for 2023? Um, knowing what you know about the marketplace and tech and all this stuff, how is it all, you know, how, how are you coping with what looks like a slightly more pessimistic market than perhaps uh, was, uh, was uh, initially the case even six, 12 months ago? Yeah, I say this internally a lot. I feel like at the moment we're fighting one of the greatest PR campaigns of all time, which is like tech hiring is dead. And it just simply isn't. And it's certainly not what we're seeing. So is there a sub-segment of companies that are doing way, way less hiring? Yes, absolutely, right? Venture-backed technology startups are not going to be growing their technology teams anywhere near as much. But if you even look at big tech, there's these amazing um, infographics. One of the best blogs that I follow in this space is the pragmatic engineer. Yeah, um, absolutely. I can never pronounce can never pronounce his name, but Gurgli, I think Gurgeli, Gurgeli Orosh or something. <laughs> so big plug for his content. It's awesome. And he did this um, analysis recently that showed like the headcount growth in big tech versus the layoffs. And these companies have still grown headcount like 12, 15, 20% in the last 12 months despite these layoffs, right? So the idea that, you know, tech hiring is dead is, is simply not true. And then the other data that I saw got released from the States recently is, um, you know, tech employment, or sorry, employment in tech roles actually increased 12% year over year. And what's driving this is obviously a lot of non-traditional technology companies hiring for the first time or, you know, investing bigger amounts of money than they've ever done before. So the largest advertiser of tech jobs in the US right now is Walmart. Right, which is obviously going and investing in a, in a massive digital transformation program. So yeah, so look, the, our business is pretty resilient. You know, we've got a bit of a skew to large organizations. So um, I think that's worked well. The, on the candidate side of the marketplace, it's obviously slightly easier to acquire talent. So we grew our, our talent pool 6X last year. So our customers are loving us for that. And then the super exciting part of the business is we launched in the US in June of last year. Uh, so we've started building out a team out there uh, we've now got a handful of customers out there and we've got a lot of candidates there. Um, so I'm spending more and more of my time. I mentioned last week I was in the States, you know, um, out there and we'll be spending more of my time this year in the US as we really start thinking about that market and how we grow into that market, which obviously is uh, 
is a massive beast of a, of a market to crack. So that's kind of the thing that's, that's on the horizon. We've got a couple of really exciting products um, updates coming. Um, yeah, we've got a, a really, really talented product org at HackerJob and there's a, a couple of yeah, interesting developments um, in the kind of em employer brand and EDNI space that's going to be coming out um, probably in Q2. And then there's a few announcements that I can't share yet, but in the next six to eight weeks, you'll see, um, which, uh, which maybe we'll do another, another session to, to chat through. I was going to say, I mean, you're giving some teasers there. Can you give us some, some I mean, without putting your product team under massive pressure? Because <laughs> I, I think, I think whenever CEO says, yeah, we're going to do this. Yeah, suddenly the product team is like crushed. Don't, uh, this is not the pro product, guys. Don't worry about this. But what is the general idea behind some of the, 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 the implementation, the new features that you're going to push out? Yeah, so, so ED&I is a massive topic in our space, right? I'm sure you spend a lot of time talking about it. I spend a lot of time talking about it with our customers. So I'm interested in how you genuinely try and solve the problem as opposed to like build features that are a bit gimmicky, right? So like we started collecting this data on our users opt-in about 12 months ago. And now about 70% of our users give us data across gender, ethnicity, neurodiversity, disability, sexuality, and reasonable adjustments for interviews. And so that's a really powerful data set. And it would be so easy to just enable sourcing by gender or sourcing by ethnicity. And you just filter the list, you know, and only show me female engineers, only show me black engineers, whatever it may be. And in the UK, you're allowed to do that. You're allowed to take positive action to, to get candidates into pipeline. But I'm not sure that fundamentally solves the problem um, of, of actual EDNI in our space. I think there's two different ways you need to solve the problem. One is you need to increase the top of funnel, right? So we need to get more people from underrepresented groups into tech. We've just announced a really cool partnership with your game plan where we're producing a ton of content for free for every 14 to 18 year old in the UK, which is going to be super cool. And that's our way of doing that. And then a lot of it is around the culture and bias inside an organization. So I'm really interested in how can we give our customers data that might show at the top of the funnel, you are 25% male and 75% female. But at higher, you are 10% female and 90% male. And actually, it's at your face-to-face -face interview stage, you see this big dropout. And they can then go in and actually do some tactical work. Okay, oh, that's an all-white male panel interview. Maybe we need to change that. Or maybe these people haven't been through our unconscious bias training. You know, maybe we need to change that. And they can actually make tactical changes to their interview process that, you know, fundamentally shift the outcomes um, and create a fair and more equitable process. So without giving too much away and how that's going to be delivered and, 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 um, and yeah, and, and the way that will get productized, that's, that's one of the things that's, that's coming pretty soon. That's, I really, really like uh, sort of everything you said on that, Mark, because it, it shows that you've had, I really like the fact that you've hesitated on and not produced the easy option of the toggle, <laughs> Do you know what I mean? the switch, which I, I have seen in products out there and there's products out there that market themselves this way. And, it, it doesn't sit entirely right with me that you can just screen out a bunch of people based on a certain demographic thing um, because of your internal problem, right? So let's say, oh, I've not got a diverse business or I need to fix that. And the way you fix it is you use what I think is quite a discriminatory tool to then screen out a bunch of people that literally, you know, are totally legitimate and fair candidates that, you know, the, just because you're trying to fix a cultural problem internally. So I, I like the fact that what you're doing is surfacing up the, the, the intelligence for them to take action internally, rather than saying, here's a tool, it's going to just solve it all, because it's not the tool that solves this. 
um, you know, it's a, the cultural, the practices internally, um, the mindset, if you like, that's going to change how people treat, um, you know, people from different uh, demographics, essentially. So, um, so yeah, very, very interesting. Excited to see that. So no pressure product guys. We expect to. <laughs> yeah. Pete and Vlad are going to be kidding me after this. Yeah. They're Mark. saying, they're saying, really God, get, Mark, get off this segment, get off the product. <laughs> All right, we're going to get off the progress of Project 7. That's fine. Um, let's go on and uh, and talk about sort of the um, – let's talk about stuff that's going on in the wider world, man. I mean, do you get sort of any uh, sort of time uh, to step away from tech, from the business and, and all the rest of it and say, you know what, what else is happening in the world that's interesting and worth talking about? Um, you know, what non-recruitment thing that has occurred, good or bad news, that's occurred to you, you know, that's not, uh, that you think, yeah, that's interesting. That's just something that's I'm going to pay a bit more attention to. My, my first answer, Hung, because we've got the, the match in two weeks' time. But the revival of Man United is obviously something that I can't, can't avoid. As a Man United season ticket holder, you know, and uh, the, the last few years not being so fun. Um, one thing that I definitely managed to do outside of work is watch United. And uh, and obviously, we've got our match against you guys in the final in two weeks, I believe. Uh, or just I, over I have, a week now, I so. have no confidence in Newcastle for this. Um, and, and actually, I have no interest because I, I think it's a major distraction. Um, there's, there's, for us, um, there's, there's no... I'm a Newcastle United fan, by the way. Uh, there's no question our progress to this... I think a Mickey Mouse Cup has basically derailed um, our attempts to get into the Champions League, which is a much bigger thing for us, obviously. But anyway, um, what would you put down? It's actually related to, 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 to the work. How would, would you put down to the turnaround? So context, uh, Man United had a new manager. Again, early start of the season, it looked like the same old shambles. Doesn't matter about manager. They're starting to talk about, look, this is a cultural issue with Man United. Not Nothing's going to change. But suddenly... Things have changed and it looks like a very strong, more competitive team, more mobilized, more new players that have previously been almost forgotten about dormant. They're coming back and Sancho scoring goals. You know, all this what's going on. So, so how would you attribute this change? Uh, what has the manager done to affect this? Yeah, I love sports for this exact analogy. And you touched on the word. I think so much of it is culture and, and the culture of the organization. If you look at what Eric Tan Hag has done since he came in, Actually, I would say the first couple of games, he kind of kind of fell back against what he did, right? He started Harry Maguire. He obviously had the Ronaldo problem. And then very quickly, he took some very big, brave decisions, right? Harry Maguire started like two games for us in the last six months, you know, which he's the club captain. We signed him for 80 million pounds, you know. When Ronaldo refused to come on against, I think it was against you guys, or no, it was against Spurs. Um, you know, he dropped Ronaldo. He was comfortable taking that decision, which ultimately ultimately led to, to Ronaldo's exit. And that's about being a very strong leader, you know, saying, these are my cultural principles. I'm going to hold you accountable. Rashford's probably the best player in the league right now, turns up late to a meeting, gets dropped, you know, and he's not willing to compromise on that. And I think that culture is a really underappreciated part of sport. Um, and I'm fascinated by it. There's an amazing book about the Kiwis uh, in rugby, the New Zealand rugby team called Legend, which talks all about that. I'm a big F1 fan. I think what Toto Wolff has done at Mercedes over seven, eight years and how you cre create like a dynasty of winning cultures is incredible. Um, the Chiefs this weekend in, in the NFL. So like, I think the, um, the, the culture, I think, is the really key thing. Now, you know, the football 
analysts will say that he's also a much more tactically astute manager than maybe what we've had before. And, you know, there's definitely some truth behind that. And obviously signing Casemiro, Casemiro. Uh, and Ericsson, right, is being, being, you know, incredible. You can see the couple of games since we've not had Casemiro, we've struggled. So there's definitely some personnel points, but it's hardly like managers in the past didn't get money to spend at United. We've spent a lot mm. of money. So I really put it down to being a very strong leader with very clear principles that he's operating that team by and taking some very tough personnel decisions. You know what? I think the personnel decisions is, it's interesting because it's it's probably easier to take those decisions when you've got a young, inexperienced group of personnel. Um, you know, if you've got, if they're young youth players that you've grown up or whatever, of course you can order them and discipline them and all the rest because you've grown up with them. But then you've got a manager coming in with Ronaldo, in my, in my opinion, the best player of all time. Um, he, he, that gravitas is massive. Like that presence is massive. Like, and he is already a person that is at the point where he refuses to be treated as anything other than this elevated character. And I just wondered, you could, can you, you could, you could probably see that in company culture as well. Like, if you're a leader of a business, there may be a, a person in that team that is that built the product for the first time, the key architect or whatever, or maybe the key salesperson that won all the big clients. But then over time, they start acting up. You know how 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 it, I think it does take a certain strength to be able to. to here's the rules. We you have to obey them, and if you're not, here's the penalty. Um, Without naming names, Mark, have you encountered, have you had to take on that leadership challenge yourself where you've had a trusted person that's somehow acted up or whatever it is and you've had to lay the law down? Can you tell us what happened? Did it happen? And can you tell us what what the outcomes of this? Yeah, I don't think there's a specific example that I'd point to of a a specific individual. But I think one thing that we are absolutely going through as a business is like, like a new evolution a new a new kind of stage of growth right so if you think about the business at the start of last year we were 70 odd people and like i say we're now 150 and the type of leaders that you need at a slightly bigger stage you know i call it like we're in this one to end phase we're in this like scale phase right where actually it is a little bit more playbooky there is a little bit more um you know things that you can just go and do and so, like I said, we brought a new sales leader, right? We brought in a, a new product leader last year. We brought in a new finance leader last year. And that, you know, meant that the, the top team was slightly different. You know, there were people in the team before that aren't there now and vice versa. Um, and I'm really keen to have that promote from within culture. You know, Vlad, who's our VP of engineering, you know, Raz knew from, from before and, you know, has been in the business pretty much, not quite since day one, but, you know, a very, very long time, six, six or seven years now. Um, you know, and it's amazing to see those people grow within, but then at certain scale, you need to layer in people that have maybe been there and done it, you know, and Taz, who came in as our VP of finance, had experience of launching businesses in the US. That's been incredibly valuable to us, right? So I think that you have to constantly evolve and question personnel. And look, you know, I could wax lyrical about this, but I think the thing that defined Sir Alex Ferguson and what made him such an elite manager was taking very, very tough personnel decisions. You know, moving on the likes of Beckham, Ruvan Nistelrooy, Yapstam, Roy Keane, you know, he was never afraid to take personnel decisions when the, the individual got bigger than the, the club. Now, I think probably sport leans its side more to that ego side. I don't, I don't know how it quite directly translates to business. So I don't think it's an example I've seen directly, but definitely conscious about how the organization is evolving and the types of people that we need in it. You know, he's talking about Fergie and, and uh, I'm going to go back into Man United, I'm afraid, but um, the, so sorry folks. Um, but um, 
I, didn't I read that he actually had a policy of recycling? Like, actually, fairly three, four, five years. There was a there was a period where he thought, you know what? He had a, a, in his mind to think, I'm going to cycle people out uh, at peak or just over peak. Uh, and again, this may not be suitable for the world of work because obviously we're talking about athletes and athletes. Will, you know, there's a, there is a clear finite sort of uh, uh, a part where you degrade. But I would probably say there's e even in non-athletes that de de degradation occurs. Um, you know, are you the sales saying sales leader again? Don't want to be ageist, but probably there's going to be a moment where you're a peak salesperson, and there's a moment where that's no longer the, the same person. So, all right, do you then have a plan to cycle out or not? That's going to be a very interesting uh, challenge. Second thing is why is that the case? And I'll draw on another manager, and this is a, this is Newcastle's manager, Kevin Keegan. Um, and he also had a philosophy, amazingly enough. Um, and one of his philosophies was he, he recognized that people would stop listening to him after a certain period of time. So in other words, his, his style of motivational leadership would have less and less impact over time because the people have heard it all before. Now, do you, what do you think of those two ideas, that there is a limit to, to the amount of leadership you can give to a certain group of people because they're just tired of your chat? Do you think that's true, or do you think more more like elephants, where you know matriarchs there forever? Everyone's going to follow the matriarch. There's no, there's no, no tiredness there. You're going to just follow the matriarch. What are we? Are we yeah. football managers? Or are we elephants? <laughs> um, I, I, so I call myself in time like a glorified cheerleader, and my job is just to repeat the same thing over and over again. So, you know, I definitely feel like that is a key part of leadership is like, you know, this is the mission, this is where we're going, this is the direction of travel, and just repeating that until people are bored of me hearing it, uh, or bored of me saying it rather. So I absolutely believe that that can happen and people can get bored of it. Listening to Toto Wolf be interviewed for Mercedes, I think is the key, which is at the start, you know, when they got to like winning the third title and then the fourth title, he was like, at the start of each year, we had a new goal. We had to reset, like, you know, it can't just be about winning the free peak now. Now it needs to be about being the first team to ever have done this. Or now it's about just sustained excellence. So this different principle so that the narrative felt fresh each time. And, you know, maybe it was a weakness of Kevin Keegan that he couldn't adapt his leadership style to communicate in a slightly different way to evolve. But I absolutely believe the parallel between, you know, Fergie's like squad design, which I think was his real superstar, like, or his thing that was like his hidden strength was how he evolved four or five teams over 25 years. And you look at the problem Liverpool have right now is they're going through this and potentially weren't as proactive as they should have been in replacing that midfield that they built. The first time around, I think in business, the analogy I'd use less age, but more stage. So like the stage of business you are, yeah, that, I didn't mean to coin it, but that's great. Uh, but like the stage of business you are, there are absolutely different leaders that are suited to different points. Um, and it's my job as a CEO to consistently evolve. Me as a CEO of 150 people is different as 70 people. It's a new challenge for me. And some of your leaders will evolve and go through that and some won't, and you'll have to bring in new leaders, right? So I definitely think the comparison and the comparable would be to, as you go through different stages of businesses, you have to kind of consistently question team structure, org structure, et cetera. Yeah, that's and and that involves ultimately not you, the, the 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 strength of a CEO is ultimately being able to have that perspective and make the best decision for the organization, not for yourself or even the relationship you have with some of the people who've become your friends. 
Um, and I think that's a part of leadership that people might struggle with. You know, you have to basically have the, the North Star has to be what's good for the business. Um, and, and that's the only uh, guiding light that you've got. Uh, maybe a topic for another conversation because we're running out of time, folks. Hasn't this been a wonderful conversation? And by the way, for our US friends, thank you for watching early. I totally agree with you. It's an unacceptable time uh, for our friends stateside. Um, I want to try and do better. I'm going to do a bit more traveling. I might actually be in North America or South America at least myself some period this year. So when I'm doing that, I will do uh, more uh, US friendly time zone sort of stuff. Uh, so make sure you'll be away, uh, available for that. Uh, but anyway, Mark, listen, you've been a great guest. Obviously, it's been great speaking to you. Uh, thank you for spending the time with us. Um, tell us what busy things you're going to get on with uh, after after this call, man. What, what uh, urgent things on your to-do list are you actually going to do uh, after this call? <laughs> I think I am on calls until 6 p.m., uh, a mix of investors and internal. And then I've got a dinner this evening with a few of our team that are over from Romania. So uh, it's quite a fun afternoon, actually. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. But I'm still not going to tick off the, the admin that I should have got done about two months ago. Yeah, that's not going to happen until there is a, a chat GPT digital mark version doing that. So um, uh, anyway, listen, uh, thanks, Mark, for your time. Wonderful seeing you. And by the way, if people want to check out Hacker Jobs, what who, who needs to check out Hacker Jobs and how do they do it? Yeah, so anybody that's looking at scaling out technology teams, you know, across the UK and the US, uh, we've got a suite of products that help you source talent, assess talent, uh, big employer branding piece and like i say an ed and i product coming pretty soon um best place check out the website uh fill out book a demo and, and one of our team or reach out to me on linkedin i still do the old sales call as well so uh more than happy to, to hop on and, and chat more about what we're doing fantastic stuff there's hackerjobs.co i believe um so check it out on the link we'll i'll share the link with everyone who's watching this as well all right that's it thanks so much mark great to see you i'll catch up with you when i'm back in town man appreciate it cheers hey. Wasn't he great, folks? Always a great conversationalist, a wonderful person to speak to. And we're lucky to have him in the UK as one of our leading tech entrepreneurs. Uh, okay, that's it for Founders, folks. Today we'll be back later this week. We're going to be talking, uh, we're going to be talking about hiring in Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states. This is happening on Thursday, 12 p.m. GMT, 3 p.m. Riyadh. Um, folks, uh, part of the Brain Food World Tour, um, which is our virtual world tour where we visit different places, different regions in the world and talk to local recruiters about the challenges they have in some of the things that they need to do. Um, oftentimes, we hear a lot about different places. Uh, the purpose of the world tour is to center the voices of the local people that are actually on site and doing it from there. So we've got a bunch of recruiters uh, from Riyadh, from uh, from Dubai, um, and uh, from other places also that are going to talk to us about the challenges of recruiting in Saudi and the Gulf states. Make sure you sign up for that. It is on Thursday, 12 p.m. Follow the channel if you want to get updated on that. Uh, okay, that's it, everyone. Thanks for watching.